This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 19th of February 2023 at home in Wicklow. And it is a meander through the world of, yes, assassinations. Prompted by my listening to a podcast about Julius Caesar and his brutal end. Um, And I realised listening to that podcast, that I'd always had this kind of grim um, fascination with with assassinations in particular, or ambushes, or like death by ambush, planned uh, executions of various figures, and how there are certain of those deaths from the world of movies that have always stayed with me. And I don't get into all of them, but I, I talk about the, the, the ones that, that have, have stood out for me. And yeah, so, I mean, basically, anytime, if you choose to listen to all this episode, anytime you hear me bring up a movie, and there's probably four or five I talk about, I'm warning you, there, you know, spoiler alert, I'm going to go into the details of those deaths. Um, I'm not going to shy away from the content. Um, I also lay out a theory um, related to to what the gun might represent in the the American psyche specifically, um, and yeah, that, that might not be something you care to to hear or engage with or validate. But I put it out there with qualifications, and. Um, yeah, uh, and ultimately, at the very end of the episode, I try to put this idea of uh, assassination and the unexpected death into a into a, a wellness context, um, just to just to kind of keep faith with the the mission statement um, and the the raison d'être of this this little offering. So that's it. That's what's coming up. That's what you've got to look forward to. If you like movies, you'll definitely like this episode. If you like assassinations, you'll also definitely like this episode. Um, and it's not all—it's not all from the movies. I do talk about some historical figures as well. So um, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, if it's not your cup of tea, don't worry about it. There'll be other things to come in uh, in due course. All right. Cheers. See you around the corner. Bye. Change my mind Leaving the dream behind Keep my inside Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. You're welcome. You're very welcome indeed. I hope this broadcast finds you well. Is broadcast... Is, 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 is that technically the correct term? <laughs> I have a vision in my mind of the RKO radio tower that used to appear at the beginning of old movies um, emitting its signal. But we're quite away. We're quite away beyond that, aren't we? Anyway, um, yeah. So this is where I am right now. It's, it's late on Sunday night. I'm about to have a really, 
really busy week um, heading into the tech week for manifest the broken talkers theater production uh, in which i will be performing with the other cast members um, so it's going to be a pretty full-on week and i'm trying to get this podcast done <laughs> i was going to do it earlier today but the window the window wasn't there it was going to be too much of a squeeze so i'm getting it done now so the when this is released which will be thursday thursday the 20 something the 23rd uh that's actually gonna be our first preview uh of the show and if you're listening to this and like the sound of the show which is an exploration of masculinity uh today um as inspired by workshops which were part of the what does he need project that has been running for a few years it started in rialto youth project it was part of a collaboration between rialto youth project the artist fiona whelan and broken talkers theater company and they ran workshops with young men in which they were charged to create a boy that would represent their experience and their aspirations and their reality and the boy would be located in their environment their community in their group and it was a way of getting the young men involved in the project to engage with their own convictions and experiences of of masculinity of being a boy of being a teenager of growing up um and finding out what they felt was possible for themselves um and i was involved in one of these workshops when the project expanded uh, i was out in in ballymun with uh, the guys in the ballymun youth resource um yeah oh my god briar b r y r out in ballymun ken and kev great lads working with them and their the young men in their care so this theater production is an a theatrical iteration of the workshops of the work that was done in the workshops and it is not literal it's not verbatim but inspired by the the dialogues that took place the conversations that took place the work that has happened in different um community youth projects around dublin over the last couple of years few years um and of course um yeah it's 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 more interesting than just a, a verbatim transmission of things that were said um and yeah i'm I, i'm very excited to to be involved in it um i've mentioned this a few times in in the episode since the start of the year but um this time next week whatever episode uh, i don't know what the hell i'll be talking about but i'll have some thoughts on how the show is going um it's just a short run from the 23rd uh of february to the 4th of march so yes if you're interested go and check it out go and buy tickets they're selling fast um you can get them at the 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 website for the project arts center in dublin so do do check it out anyway that's all 
bit of a long-winded way of giving you the reason that I'm recording this late on a Sunday night in hashtag blessed. Well, the house is quiet. The the girls are asleep. And I have a quiet moment now to do this. So, I'm just going to get straight into it. And I'm not really sure what thesis I'm presenting this week. But, and don't be put off by this. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to talk about assassinations historic and fictional assassinations and this is not going to be comprehensive it's not going to be every single uh, assassination of significance i'm going to cherry pick and i'm going to tell you the, the, the talk about assassinations that have fascinated me uh, and resonated with me and uh, i just want to explore my responses and reactions and revisit some infamous um infamous planned killings i suppose is what we're talking about um and then ultimately perhaps try to try to draw as ever try to draw some thread to to wellness um if i can yeah it remains to be seen if i'm if i'm successful in that objective um in fact to call it an objective is somewhat of a an overstatement i think it'll be a happenstance a fluke a coincidence if i manage to draw a thread to wellness of some sort i i have a an idea that's percolating but um yeah i'll wait and see i'll wait and see what 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 comes up now you might be going why in god's name is he talking about assassinations what is so interesting and is it not just a little bit morbid and macabre um yes yes i think it is those things and and that's that's part of the the fascination but specifically this little nugget this kernel of an idea was inspired by listening which is so often the case with with things i talk about on the podcast um well maybe not so often but certainly not unusual for me to be inspired by something I've heard or seen or read and then that gives me some juice with which to with which to make more juice <laughs> and maybe my juice is a watered down version of the the first bit of juice uh but no I hope not I was listening to a great great history podcast which was recommended to me by a friend uh it's called the rest is history and i'm not going to remember the names of the two english historians who have uh, a great rapport and an impressive depth of historical knowledge and an evident enthusiasm for their chosen subject um and so i found myself revisiting the podcast fairly regularly and just recently, maybe even as recently as last week, uh, and maybe not, maybe I was listening to an archival episode, but I listened to one of their episodes, which was all about the assassination of Julius Caesar. That's right, Julius Caesar. And when I was listening to it, I I was just getting these sort of um, flashbacks or 
emotional uh, memories or, or ripples from the past that reminded me of how the the assassination of Julius Caesar was how it was something that fascinated me when I was when I was young. Um, I mean, I think as a as a teenager, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure when I first knew of that part of Roman history and if it predated being exposed to Shakespeare's play. Um, I don't think I've ever sat through uh, the Hollywood black and white version, which I think had, was it Louis Calhoun as Caesar? and Marlon Brando as Mark Anthony. Was he Mark Anthony or was he Brutus? Um, I don't know how uh, how worthy that is of, of consideration. But I mean, I think effectively that was a version of the Shakespeare play. I did see a version of the play in Stratford, Ontario in 1990 at the, the Stratford Festival. Um, and... It featured who? Brian Bedford, I think, as Brutus and Colm Fiore. You might know that actor, Canadian actor, Colm. Is it Fiore? I'm not not sure if that's how you pronounce his name. He's a face you'd know from things like Face Off, (laughs) of all things. Um, Face Off with uh, the John Woo movie with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. Um, Alessandro Nivola I think Colm Fiore is the scientist in that he's also in a movie about Glenn Gould playing Glenn Gould um, so there you go that, they're the only two references that come to mind but he's a face you'd know anyway he must have been I think he was Mark Anthony in that production a uh, very traditional production but one I enjoyed enormously and I remember then being very enthusiastic about sitting down to read the the play by Shakespeare um, but there was and I mean I've been trying to, I've, been, I've been thinking about this for the past week and trying to identify or, or home in on this specific thing that exerted such a hold on my on my imagination and to an extent still does um and there is something chilling, I think, about the helplessness of the target of an assassination. And in Julius Caesar's case, this idea that there were multiple conspirators uh, and chief amongst them, his formerly loyal friend, Brutus um, and there's something about the I don't know if it <laughs> I, I think something about picturing Caesar in, in little less than a bedsheet, sheet uh, which is often how I think of togas Roman togas and the, the sort of the vulnerability of that clothing and how there was really nothing that was going to protect him from the blades 
that were wielded and so viciously brought about his death. Um, and then the, the, the extra sort of chill um, in that the the conspirators were were known to him, were on some level, I, I mean, I don't know if it, it, I mean to say they were friends, but they were his familiars, I suppose, um, even if they were political rivals or, or reluctant um, allies, uh, reluctant senators uh, under his command. Um, but listening to the, the brilliant, brilliant podcast, and I, I highly, I mean, I'll throw in a link to that episode of The Rest is History because it lays out in considerable detail um, the lead up to the assassination and the rather dire consequences for those who were amongst the conspirators. Um, and there was much bloodshed afterwards, um, brutal reckonings brought down on the heads of those who had dared to slay the the would-be emperor. Um, and yeah, really, really well told by the guys on, on, on the rest is history. Um, and it did, it just got me thinking, it got me thinking about, oh yeah, the, I don't know if it was the thinking about the, the vulnerability of someone who is about to be executed by assassination. Um, because certainly in how assassinations have been depicted in 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 movies, uh, assassinations of different kinds, um, and, and this would be this would be very different to say, for example, killings in a, in the horror genre which are um, laid out and presented in a very particular way to achieve particular beats and notes of that genre. Um, and there's a sort of a, we have an expectation. If you sit down to watch a horror movie and know that there's a, a murderer of some kind, um, whether it's you know Michael Myers from the Halloween movies or... Freddy from the Nightmare on Elm Street series or is it is it Jason from Friday the 13th um, we, we have an expectation that many people will be dispatched <laughs> in variously gruesome ways by the by the killer by that figure of horror um, and in a way the, the the killer is the hero of the piece uh, even though there's usually a, a protagonist that we're meant to um, throw our lot in with, um, which would be Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, in the, the Halloween movies. Um, but in assassinations, there is very often the element of, of surprise, the element of of the unexpected um, and there's a sort of a, a a blithe aspect to the the character characterization of the victim's perspective often the victim is presuming that all is well 
and that that presumption that um presumption coming into contact with the viciousness of no this wasn't what was on the cards for you my friend and the fact that the the people committing the crime the the executors so to speak of the assassination um have led you know led that person into this false sense of security or are taking advantage of knowing the that the person will be in that state of unpreparedness there's a real brutality to that um and i i don't know i mean i, I i'm just kind of i'm thinking in my seat <laughs> uh i don't know if if there's something about that that speaks to the most brutal aspect of the human psyche because an assassination of course is is premeditated it's it's rarely um it's rarely a crime of passion it's rarely a hot-headed impulsive act um it's planned uh and in, in of course in caesar's case there were there were many people involved in the planet in in the planning um so it, like it's different to i don't know like it's different to warfare it's different to combatants on either side of a conflict um it's because often it's it's taking place in civilian life um although I mean, although you can call, you know, you have to shade that a bit if you're talking about, you know, historical kind of political figures um, of, of which there have been many who have been killed by an assassin's bullet. Um, and yeah, is it is it Franz Ferdinand? Was he? <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, I, I knew I knew I was going to sit down to do this and regret not picking up my history book um was Franz Ferdinand the assassin who kicked off the first world war is that right am i wrong um or was was he the victim i apologize to history fans i'm i'm an absolute disgrace but look i i i shouldn't i shouldn't be walking myself into cul-de-sacs i should lean into what i do want to talk about um which is to sort of just to cherry pick these these assassinations that really jumped out to me as uh, a young consumer of movies and particularly uh, yeah of movies and one of the earliest ones and I feel I would have first seen this in my early to mid teens at the very oldest and it was Arthur Penn's 1967 Bonnie and Clyde and I have yeah I've watched that movie a few times since in my life 
But I remember my early memories of that movie. It was on TV late one night. And I remember being struck by Faye Dunaway's beauty um, in the early scenes from that film. Uh, I remember on some level also being struck by Warren Beatty's beauty or his, you know, his handsomeness, his good looks, his, his kind of cool. And then being aware of how the movie came alive anytime uh, Gene Hackman was involved um, and why do I think Shelley Winters was also in that cast is that right um, I need to just double check that because I'm just going to be annoyed but those actors um, and of course the the incidents of the incidents of violence um, in the movie and ones that involved someone being shot in the face through the back of a through the back kind of window of a car um, and no it wasn't Shelley it wasn't Shelley uh, Shelley Winters was it Estelle Parsons that's it yeah, sorry about that. That was a, that was a bum steer. Um, a very funny performance by Gene Wilder in that movie as well. Um, and a, a, a depiction of the American Midwest in the Depression era and a sort of a an artful stillness to to a certain sequence when they were sitting out in a field, like a cornfield, and very kind of staged and picturesque looking. Um, and that was all fine. And I, I didn't, at that young age, I didn't grasp the sexual dilemma that was playing out between Bonnie and Clyde. But I was very clear that my allegiances lay with them, that they were outlaws that they were young they were beautiful they were interesting they were compelling and i'd been programmed by the you know all the movies i'd watched up until that point to to fall in with the outlaws and of course you know that's not that's not an accident because that's you know they're deliberate narrative choices uh, they're the deliberate narrative choices of the directors, the storytellers, um, and the the byproduct of the actors who are cast in those roles. Um, I mean, you're not going to not throw your lot in with Paul Newman in the left-handed gun as Billy the Kid. Um, I mean, that's just, of course, of course, <laughs> like Paul Newman's compelling screen presence. You're going to go with him. Um, I mean, Billy the Kid, just to, to jump out there very quickly, another one of these characters who, you know, infamously was shot in the back by Pat Garrett. Uh, and gosh, I mean, I'm finding myself questioning that now and wondering, is that apocryphal? But that's the, that's, the, that's the story that's come to us over the years. And that's been laid out in different places at different times in different movies. Um 
certainly in um in Peck and Paws, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, certainly in The Left Handed Gun. I'm trying to remember when Emilio Estevez played uh Billy the Kid in the Young Guns movies um in the early nineties, how he finished up. Certainly that's a very charismatic performance by Emilio Estevez in the first Young Guns. Uh, I thought that was great when I was a teenager. Um, and then in more recent years, the very sort of elegiac, the assassination of Billy Kid, Billy the Kid by the, the coward Robert Ford. And that what it was called with Brad Pitt and Casey Affleck. Um Jesse James, sorry, not Billy the Kid. That was Jesse James. I apologise. So, so I've, I, I may have just confused those two. I'm now on question: Who was shot in the back? Was it Jesse James or was it Billy the Kid? Both of them, or only one of them? Um, but again, outlaws, outlaws, outlaws. That's the point. You know, Jesse James, these cowboy outlaws. Um, yeah, Jesse James. What's that? What's that movie that was made by Walter Hill with all the brother actors in it? Um, the Quades were in that. The Carradines were in that. The Keeches were in that. I've just gone blank on the name of that movie from the seventies. Um, I'll have to. I might have to check that one out uh, while I'm recording and get back to you on it. But I mean, those really that they were the kind of the original. Um, outlaw stories that I identified with as a watcher of movies, the cowboy movies, the cowboy stories, these guys on the, you know, the outside of the law, um, sort of pseudo Robin Hood characters. Um, And I mean, you know, it's not like you weren't also at times invited to identify with the lawmen. Um, I mean, Wyatt Earp uh, comes to mind, obviously. But... Okay, I'm 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 getting away from Bonnie and Clyde because I was trying to get back to those first impressions of Bonnie and Clyde, and so Bonnie and Clyde, uh, as I was saying, I didn't grasp this this sexual um, tension or dilemma that was playing out between um, Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty in the movie, and the sort of asexuality of Warren Beatty or his his impotence or um, I don't know if it's implied I, I mean I'm still not clear on this if it's implied that he is gay um, but whatever I mean I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that now in a second but those first impressions the incidents of violence the sitting in the, the, the cornfield in the, the in, in the daytime in the depression era in the midwest of America and the beauty of the young leads the kind of electricity of the Gene Hackman performance and then then ultimately the extraordinary end to the movie where you think as as the as the as the, the watcher you're going okay cool these characters who I like who are cheeky and bold and beautiful, they're going to get away with this. They're going to get away with this with their Depression era chic and their Tommy guns and the beautiful Faye Dunaway and the cool Warren Beatty. They're going to get away with it. 
and they are stopped on a road by someone who they believe is a friend and it's captured so brilliantly the moment of oh shit where we've been you know we've been set up here we've been set up for the ambush and along the roadside in the the kind of the, the hedges that line the road there is an explosion of gunfire and they are torn to shreds by the relentless bullets and I might be misremembering this even though I've watched it relatively recently I feel like there was a Gatling gun involved as well and they are peppered and it's brutal it's brutal and there's a an awful sort of gut-wrenching tragic feeling to their end um because we're conditioned i was certainly conditioned to go no they'll they'll get away with this and they deserve to get away with this and i didn't know their story at that stage anyway i mean i knew oh bonnie and clyde the the bank robbers from the depression era the cheeky posing for photos bank robbers um you know, and, and there's an interesting part of that as well, the relationship that America has to outlaws, the relationship to fame, the relationship to the public image, the relationship to, you know, between notorious figures and the public at large. I mean, where does that list begin and where does it end? And how is that not understood to be a central theme of, of American success? Um, and certainly American success in the in in the public eye. I mean, they they go hand in hand, um, and so yeah, that that I that that's I just remember feeling just almost ill at the the horrific and brutal and cold and callous end um, of Bonnie and Clyde in that movie. Um, so that that probably was the first. Um, assassination on film that I was like oh my and, and you know you might argue with me oh well, that wasn't an assassination for the sake of the uh, this episode I'm going to argue yeah it was <laughs> you know the helplessness the setup the planning the vulnerability um, and the utter finality of the success of the assassination um absolutely haunting and chilling uh and of course you know bonnie and clyde was one of the key movies in the emergence of the new hollywood that sort of golden era of 70s directing bonnie and clyde and easy rider were probably the two movies that really kicked it off bonnie and clyde also um the subject of one of Pauline Kael's great, great, great uh, critical essays, the, the film critic from the new, was it The New Yorker, um, who was such a key figure in documenting and celebrating and making known the, the key figures of the, the new age of directing and filmmaking in Hollywood at that time. 
um, you know, these directors inspired by the, the Nouvelle Vague, the, the French New Wave movies. And that is an essay you should seek out um, if you can. Pauline Kael's essay on Bonnie and Clyde. Um, yeah, like a, a, a core a core text of of the era and of the whole sort of cultural movement of the new Hollywood. Um, and yeah, just to go back then to the the kind of sexual politics of of Bonnie and Clyde and maybe this you know the implication that Clyde is impotent um, or unable and maybe not actually impotent but just unable to perform sexually or to to complete sexually with um, with Faye Dunaway uh, a very beautiful Faye Dunaway at that stage of her life and the the obvious or maybe it's not obvious to you but it seems obvious to me that the you know if if Clyde's potency doesn't lie in his sexual performance and doesn't lie in what he can do with his 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 manhood so to speak then where does it lie and of course the answer is it lies in his gun and the gun is the great sort of metaphor of American potency uh, and how the West was won and the sort of, you know, the, the war with, um, you know, indigenous Americans, American Indians, that was, you know, through the barrel of a gun and, you know, blood-soaked and violent and fiery and explosive and yeah penetrative and of course you know the bullets that penetrate it's the 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 ultimate kind of masculine victory over the, the you know the object of desire and you know the object of desire can be sexual of course um but the object of desire could be land it could be oil um you know, it's 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 the weapon of of conquest, um, and it's once once unloaded, once triggered, once dispatched. The when it strikes its target, the result is you know it, it's fatal, it's terminal, um, and so that's there's something about that as well, isn't there? There's something about that in the mix with this idea of of assassinations. And the the idea that and and maybe this is a, a, a ridiculous reach, but the idea that you know my potency, if I'm the wielder of the gun, is going to rend, render you, uh, you know, render you in render you the in in the kind of the ultimate impotent position, i.e., death. So I'll rob you of any, any form of potency, and the you know the the obviously the, the the potential of life. I'll take that from you, and that's that's in the mix as well. Like there, there's something in there. Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna jump around a bit here because I'm gonna quickly 
move away from well of course Bonnie and Clyde were real figures um, even though that was the, the you know the movie version of their story um, but I'm going to jump for a second to two real life assassins and you might think assassin might glorify one was an attempted assassination and one was a successful assassination slash murder and I'm just going to talk briefly about uh, John Hinckley and about Mark David Chapman and if you're not familiar with those names I'll just quickly tell you that John Hinckley was the man who attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan uh, I think that was in gosh maybe I got my dates wrong here was that in 1982 um, I think it might have been um, so John Hinckley was the man who attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan I think he fired his gun six times maybe at Reagan um, as he was about to get into his presidential car and he was shot under the armpit if um, if I recall correctly and Mark David Chapman was the man who was successful in killing John Lennon um, so that of course was in December 1980 I, I remember that news breaking when I was sitting in my primary school classroom and the teacher uh, our teacher telling us and just I don't know I mean I, I was whatever I was only I was eight about to turn no what age was I six sorry I was six about to turn seven holy hell <laughs> and um, yeah the Hinckley assassination was 1981 um, just a couple of months after Reagan's first inauguration but yeah I remember being six or seven six about to turn seven and getting that news in the classroom John Lennon's just been shot and I, I don't I, I'm trying to I'm just trying to recollect what the impact of that was it obviously felt like a very grown up and serious piece of news and it felt very wrong um, but in a little classroom in Rathdrum, County Wicklow it felt very far away uh, and yet it felt like oh the world isn't really going to be the same again, is it? Um, and it's not. I, I, I suppose it was the first time I had a sense of a figure that I knew, and someone who, even at that young age, would have gone, "Oh yeah, cool, John Lennon, the Beatles. <laughs> I like that. I like. I like them. I like their music. They're cool guys. I'd see their." pictures up I know in, 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 in a friend's house one of my best buds as a kid um, hurry you will if you're listening in his house he was lucky enough that um, there was a a room <laughs> a room that had a pool table in it and it was like it was separate from the house so it was a sort of an old um, outhouse or barn that had been converted and 
you know, when the adults weren't in there, you could go in and you could play pool. And I remember in the wall, up on the wall, there were four portraits of John, Paul, George and Ringo, which may have been from the sort of Let It Be era or unless they were from the Abbey Road era, but they were, you know, very hairy and bearded and cool looking and very iconic and they were sort of yeah four by eight uh portrait size shots up on the wall i thought yeah those guys i like them a lot um and so yeah as i say i remember even as a kid at that age going having that sort of uh-oh feeling this isn't good this is something very sad and dark and nasty I, I don't really have any recollection of taking it further than that. I don't remember having conversations about it or talking to my parents or my, my older brother. Um, yeah, my younger brother was only a, a couple of months old at that stage, so I wouldn't have been talking to him. But um, in any case, Mark David Chapman and John Hinckley, um, I suppose were both... And it's actually John Hinckley, yeah, Jr., as I said. In this kind of discussion of assassination, like those guys are interesting um, because they were both motivated in very strange ways. The in 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 Mark David Chapman's case, he he was only he was only a young guy, he was only twenty five, and he was inspired by Oh, the Holden Caulfield character and J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye and felt that he was sort of a, an avenging figure and a figure that was going to call bullshit on what he saw as kind of John Lennon's hypocrisy and John Lennon's sort of uh, what he saw as John Lennon's anti-religious position and uh, Mark David Chapman had a was a born again Christian um and felt he had to take John Lennon to task um in subsequent years he did admit that yeah he wanted fame and glory um and he like that was I think that was a big part of his his frame was that he resented not having the things that John Lennon enjoyed the fame and the the, the wealth and the success and he found it galling that John was preaching um you know, imagine no possessions um, when he had, you know, yachts and beautiful houses and country estates and lived this glamorous life. Uh, and he felt, a la Holden Caulfield, that he was there to to uh, challenge and stand up to the phonies. Um, and, yeah, when he was... He didn't flee the scene of 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 the death of the of the murder, uh, the assassination. He sat there and waited until the police came and took him away. And when they found him, he was apparently sitting down reading Catcher in the Rye. Um, and so that is what the act of a lonely, disturbed young man. And it doesn't, you know, it resonates in a different way 
to the the, the, the you know to, to the other stories or the other incidents. Um, John Hinckley Jr. was obsessed with the actress Jodie Foster, and had been since he'd seen her in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, and in Taxi Driver. Robert De Niro's character, Travis Bickle, um, flirts with the idea of assassinating a, a presidential candidate um, or a senatorial candidate, I can't remember exactly. And he finds connection with this basically you know, child prostitute uh, as played by Jodie Foster, who's under the um, under the kind of guidance and care and control of a very creepy and sinister Harvey Keitel, um, one of one of the great Harvey Keitel performances, by the way. I mean, I spoke about Taxi Driver in an episode last last year, but Harvey Keitel is really unsettling in that movie and has a very creepy scene dancing with Jodie Foster in. Um, you know, in a in a, in a in a bedroom, um, yeah. But in any case, John Hinckley, Jr. was like, okay, I'm going to emulate the Travis Bickle character, and I'm going to you know win the attention and perhaps love of Jodie Foster when I take out the president. Um, and then it's kind of, you know, the layer of. I don't know if it's irony, but, you know, the the kind of coincidence of, you know, Ronald Reagan, who had been a very successful film actor, um, becoming president and becoming the figure that Hinckley Jr. thought needed to be killed. I don't think he had any great personal animus. Is that how you pronounce that word? Animus? Animus? <laughs> animus. Animus will do. Give me a moose. Animus will do. Um, animus towards Reagan. It was just this kind of delusional fixation on on Jodie Foster, and his his assassination attempt was was unsuccessful in the in the end. Um, but there's something about Mark David Chapman and John Hinckley Jr. and their a desire for fame, a desire for a claim, a desire to be seen, a desire to be known, a desire to be um, honoured in some way, a desire to be seen as exceptional. Uh, and to me, that speaks of, again, this this idea that I would perceive in particularly kind of the American 20th century story, the, you know, the 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 desire for fame and the, the desire for success in the public eye and a conviction that and maybe this speaks to the Andy Warhol idea of you know everyone will have their whatever it is the 15 minutes of fame the conviction that if I can just get everyone's attention for a second I'll be on my way and I don't mean I'll be on my way as in I'll be leaving but not, I'll be on my way to the top I'll be on my way to that starry place in the sky and great things will follow. Um, and, you know, thinking of, thinking of those, you know, of, of, of taxi driver and delusion 
and an, an obsession with fame or achieving fame, it's 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 impossible not to also mention Scorsese's uh, very unique The King of Comedy with Robert De Niro as Rupert Pupkin, the would-be stand-up who kidnaps the Jerry Lewis character, Jerry Lewis playing a very sour and embittered version of himself um, and Pupkin kidnapping him to go, come on, check out, check out my stuff, check out my act. And of course, um, when uh, was it? Oh, I was going to say, is it Todd Field who directed The Joker um, recently with Joaquin Phoenix? Um, it, it's such a, it's such a massively direct lift of the king of comedy. Um, it felt a bit wrong, even though I, I very much enjoyed The Joker and thought Joaquin Phoenix was excellent in it. Um, the 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 very obvious references and echoing of the king and comedy king of comedy including casting robert de niro as the chat show host in in the joker seemed um almost a bit too much um but i don't know um it's i guess it was you know it was was a form of, of of flattery um I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's that, that's the line, isn't it? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Uh, I mean, it succeed, you know, Joker succeeds on its own terms anyway. And so, so, so well done, lads. Well done, you know. Uh, if, <laughs> if you're listening, I approved. Um, so anyway, moving away from those guys and those, you know, th- those... Uh, assassinations and kill killings or attempted killings in the case of Reagan um, I remember again I remember the Reagan one just as a, as a new story and I, I guess it was less chilling or interesting or disturbing because he survived um, but then I'm going to jump along and this is where I'll probably I'll probably finish up on this this topic today before I try and think of how um <laughs> i might i might somehow morph this into a, a topic that's germane to wellness you know other than you know let's not kill each other or you know assassins stop killing people because um that that doesn't let them be well um the other great movie assassinations I just I'm going to hit you with these two, yeah, maybe three movies, and I'm going to stay with um, the Italian American directors because, of course, The Godfather, Francis Ford Coppola's masterpiece, um, may be only outdone by The Godfather Two um, in terms of its chilling um, portrait of murder incorporated of organized crime of the hypocrisy of the american dream um of the sort of cold callous depths to which very determined remorseless operators will sink to protect what they have to achieve or claim what they want um the godfather remains um an amazing piece of cinematic work and 
the final sequence, the the christening sequence of of Michael Corleone's nephew and Michael Corleone <laughs> Corleone Michael becoming his nephew's godfather and also of course being the the don the new head of the family and that christening scene or or baptism whichever it is being intercut with these brilliantly violent executions slash assassinations of the enemies of the family uh, while the the rites are being um, the rites are being uh, exclaimed by the priest and repeated by Michael it, it it's brilliant it's just an extraordinary piece of of montage filmmaking of brilliant storytelling um so evocative so thrilling so i mean i i don't know if I, i'd say disturbing i mean i remember when, i remember seeing the godfather for the first time when i was like 18 or 19 and just going yeah absolutely <laughs> amazing and again i suppose being chilled by the by the violence the the sort of matter of factness of it um was kind of sickening uh and yeah yeah i mean i, I keep coming back to that word chilling and of course in the godfather there were you know other deaths other killings the you know the attempted assassination of of don corleone of marlon brando and the the oranges spinning on the street and john casales casales fredo being ineffectual in protecting his dad the execution of the movie producer's horse um which we don't see we only see the aftermath um and maybe maybe more famously and maybe truer to the the tone uh, of this episode the assassination of sonny at the toll booth um james as played by james can and that is another great hollywood death another great hollywood execution and very similar very similar to the end of Bonnie and Clyde where James Caan suddenly finds himself pinned in on the road uh, by a toll booth, cars behind, cars in front and the toll officer um, or the toll guy who's there to take the money just suddenly ducks down and James Caan, as Sonny's coming on, whoa, what's going on here? And again, suddenly gunmen pop up with their machine guns and just let him have it and he is yeah i don't know how many squibs they put on him to achieve that effect but he is brutally murdered um and the ultimate kind of ignominy of his dead body being kicked uh you know across the face by one of the gunmen 
before they they tear off yeah brilliant brilliant stuff <laughs> you know brutal and horrible and like just i think yeah like the you know the, the, that that's you know that's what's being highlighted the brutality and see of course there's a great there's a great cinematic quality to these scenes these moments so they achieve the, the you know the narrative effect the you know the loss of a key character and whether it's you know bringing a story to an end as it was in the case of Bonnie and Clyde or setting up a very uh, extreme escalation of events as is the case with the Godfather um, they are there to to shock they are there to sort of galvanize us uh, as we watch and and of course this is the whole thing the you know if you, if you go to the 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 critic david thompson and his whole thing of you know we're voyeurs where we're sitting in the dark watching these things unfold and cinema it, it, you know it's one of the great vicarious experiences um you know especially when we're you know in a cinema in the dark watching on the big screen watching these these car these larger than life characters um live extreme lives have extreme experiences um or not depending on the the type of movie you're watching but ultimately for many of us there's always a, a projection there's always a projection of self into the story whether we're identifying with someone whether it's wish fulfillment whether it's it's fantasy whether it's desire, whether 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 it's satisfying um, a sexual impulse, whether it's satisfying uh, a death wish or a bloodlust, um, whether whether it's satisfying a desire for for power, manipulation, control, um, explosive catharsis. This is what movies do to us, and this is what. You know, paying your 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 paying for your ticket gives you entry to this world, and it gives you permission to go on that journey. Um, and it's one of the you know one of the things that remains compelling in the the act of watching movies. And it's it's one of the great transactions um, of being allowed to watch. Um, and for David Thompson, it's 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 loaded. It's loaded with um the you know the sexual desire um the the sexual impulse uh and it's you know it, it, it's a reason why you know so many movie actors um continue to be objects of of attraction objects of desire um and objects of yeah like you know, objects of great kind of beauty great physical beauty and aesthetic beauty that's not an accident they want us to fall in love with them they want us to want to watch them that's part of the the lore that's part of the deal and as a friend of mine who who i taught with in in melbourne she used to say i don't want to look at i'm not i don't want to look at ugly people in bad clothes (laughs) i want them to look like stars i want them to be beautiful i want them to be attractive that's that's the deal that I sign up for. Um, 
so yeah so again the godfather like it has a couple of absolute classics the 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 the, the james can assassination and then michael's revenge uh at the very end of the movie intercut so um yeah so brilliantly by the young uh francis ford coppola um and then to jump ahead martin scorsese uh is going to feature twice and the victim is going to be the same actor uh joe pesci in both goodfellas and um in casino comes to very unpleasant ends now you can decide if you've seen those movies you'll know joe pesci in the goodfellas has been told he's about to become a made guy and like ascend in the ranks of the of the mafia and basically be sort of untouchable and it's a great honor and of course what happens in the most brutal uh way is that he's been set up and it's brilliantly done by scorsese because pesci the door is open for him into what he thinks is going to be the room where he'll be become a made man and the second the door is open and he looks in it's just an ordinary room there's no one there and he knows and we see it from his point of view and he's like oh no and he knows that he's been he's actually there to be executed because he took out a made man himself in one of the great sequences in the movie a great brutal nasty vicious sequences in the movie and in fact it's what the movie starts with um is the kind of the aftermath of that murder which kind of sets up the whole sort of ill-fated um kind of destiny of 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 the main characters so um that is i think a great a great movie assassination that of joe pesci in goodfellas and then a few years later joe pesci again playing a real nasty piece of work in fact even nastier than the character he played in goodfellas in casino he's just this absolute sociopath um yeah and when he is killed at the end of casino it's done with such you know horrible yes and yet again chilling relish by the guys who are killing him because he's made such a name for himself and um pissed off so many people and it's just such a brutal brutal killing and what they do is they take him out to this cornfield uh with his brother and what they do is they kill his brother in front of him first and beat him to death with baseball bats and throw him in an open grave and make joe pesci watch and then do the same to him and chuck him in on top of the brother and he's still alive as they bury him alive uh stripped down to his jocks and beaten to death with baseball bats it's absolutely and you know look i'm sorry (laughs) i'm gonna do a spoiler alert in the intro to this but again i remember the first time i saw that it was in the empire cinema in leicester square in london in i think it was 1996 when i saw it um i think it was because it was around the time of my my grandmother's uh death and funeral uh, on my mother's side and oh yeah i just remember going oh this is this is grim 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 stuff so I, you know, there are probably others 
and I'm sure I had others in my head earlier. Oh, you know what? I was going to talk about JFK as well. And just a quick one, just quickly on JFK. Now, when I say JFK, I'm talking about the actual assassination um, in 1963, wasn't it? And that, of course, that period in sort of mid-20th century America where you had these hugely prominent political figures who were shot down. And that is JFK, his brother, Bobby Kennedy, um, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, all shot down, all seen as threats, all assassinated. Um, and this kind of idea of 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 the patsy, um, as in someone who has been fingered for the killing who wasn't necessarily you know this, this idea that you know in, in JFK's case there was no lone gunman many players were involved um, and actually I don't know the backstory of uh, Sirhan Sirhan who killed Bobby Kennedy um, and of course it was Jack Ruby then that killed Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't it um, and those assassinations were on another level. And I think what's interesting about the, the, the JFK assassination is that that almost, because of the Zapruder, the Zapruder film, which captured the assassination, um, it almost feels like it was in a movie. It almost feels as, I mean, it was, like because it was caught on someone's camera, but it almost feels like it belongs in, you know, this, this, this kind of list of famous movie killings that I'm talking about. And Oliver Stone used it to great effect in his um, sort of fever pitch delivery of what he believed was behind the the assassination of JFK and he brought a very convincing conspiracy to the screen in I think that was 1991 was it JFK with Kevin Costner um as the you know the the DA uh Jim Garrison bringing the case to bear um and again so funny so funny I mean again last year I did an episode about Kevin Costner being basically a baby boomer's wet dream, the representation of all baby boomer fears and neuroses. And in a way, again, he's doing that in JFK because it's the, this idea of presenting JFK as the, you know, the father of a better America shot down, um, at, you know, at the, the height of his beauty and power and the height of his idealistic symbolism. But of course, if you dig deep and scratch the surface at all, you know there's much more to it than that. And I mean, for example, if you look at Andrew Dominic's Blonde from last year, the Marilyn Monroe uh, biopic that caused such uproar and um, sort of reprehension and disgust from so many viewers and critics, but which I think was actually quite an effective piece of work. And JFK features briefly in that in, you know, extremely um, awful light, let's put it that way. And 
you know, again, you know, most of these accounts of JFK make it very clear he was an absolute hound and had women presented to him like delicacies on a platter. Um, and Marilyn Monroe, certainly in, in Blonde, is presented that way in, in very, you know, in very tragic, in a very tragic and disturbing scene. Um, but, yeah, I mean, again, we're talking about myth-making in in terms of certainly in terms of like some of these american stories myth making and myth breaking um and yet it's hard not to sort of look at those four figures in particular malcolm x martin luther king the kennedy brothers at in such a short period of time um and I don't know. How can you not kind of come away and kind of go the primacy of the gun in in sort of the American consciousness um, has been there for, you know, you know, has been a sort of a defining element. And I, I think it's, you know, you think of the the Constitution, the right to bear arms and how there's such a huge lobby uh, still to to maintain the, the the primacy of the gun in the hands of American citizens and to have it as a central aspect of American life and a, a central aspect of an understanding of Americanness or American virility and I think that of course brings me back to my earlier analysis of the gun as as phallic symbol um, the gun as life life giver life preserver and life taker um, but it's uh, it's limited isn't it I mean is that is that another way am, am I accusing America of of leading with its dick forgive forgive my language um maybe i am and i mean look it, it's it's one it's one strand isn't it it's one strand of of the american identity and i'm not trying to oversimplify i'm not trying to reduce um you know reduce that sort of extraordinarily sort of un, unwieldy uncontainable culture which still has such huge influence in the world um, but I don't know there is something very sad and tragic about the ending of those particular lives um, and what they represented what they symbolised which to my mind were they were progressive voices they were liberal voices they were um symbols of of a better america in in many ways i guess at that time and you know it, it's hard to know it's hard to know if those guys came back if you know if they were able to kind of look at the state of america now what they might think and i'm not for a millisecond trying to idealize those men um I mean, I'm not sufficiently schooled in their their histories to speak with any authority whatsoever. 
But as always, you know, these were complex, flawed men. There was nothing perfect about any of them. Um, but they were certainly seen as significant threats whose lives were ended in the most brutal ways. Um, you know, for different reasons. And um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Look, it's... Um, That, that 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 is um in 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 no way <laughs> in no way is that a satisfactory conclusion to this episode and um i don't know i don't know but there's a there's a kind of a, a bleeding there's a bleeding over of these stories of public figures in public life actual historical figures into the movies and kind of back and forth I mean, the Kennedys, of course, famously were captured by life photographers and the presentation of, you know, Jackie and JFK, um, you know, in this kind of Camelot lifestyle, these iconic figures of youth and beauty and hope for an America that was trying to, you know, I, I think, recharacterize itself or emerge into a modern era as as something progressive and optimistic. Um, of course, the Cold War was a backdrop to that as well. Um, and there was a sort of an iconography built around that administration, um, built around this kind of, and, yeah, and built around the kind of the Kennedy legacy. I mean, that, that never really went away these kind of golden children of uh, of Irish America and uh, of political America. Um, and their legacies, of course, much more secure than those of African-Americans in, in Martin Luther uh, King and, um, and Malcolm X. So, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, isn't it? But in any case, I need to wrap this up because... Um, I've got to take myself to bed shortly. Um, let me hit you with my wellness connection idea, okay? This, you know, this was... <laughs> I, I really, yeah, I, I'm not at all satisfied with the... my inability to kind of resolve the purpose of this conversation other than to kind of go... to, to, to sort of to demonstrate, display my, my own morbid interest in these lives and deaths fictional and otherwise but i was trying to think about it in a wellness context um and there's a couple of aspects to this and in a way one of them is very literal it's this idea that that we can all be got at any time now that's that's a very dark thought, isn't it? But I think we're always vulnerable. Someone, anyone, could choose to get us at any time, and I'm not, I'm not trying to over overly kind of characterize the other as a gun person or a mad person or a delusional person or a sociopath or a psychopath or any of that. I'm not trying to be as as literal as that, but it's more this idea that you know we're we're always kind of gettable in some way unless we never leave our room um or you know 
go about in a, an armoured tank. And... You know, like, I don't know. Like that, maybe that's stating the absolute obvious, which is is one of my, you know, one of my hallmarks. Um, but whatever that kind of represents, this idea of vulnerability, I think the wellness aspect of that is to go, yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course. We're vulnerable. Of course, there's human frailty. There's physical frailty. There is mortality. And we're not invulnerable, invincible, impregnable. Um, something can always get us. But that's not to stop us from going forth. That's not to stop us from setting out. That's not to stop us from living the fullest life we can. And we can be aware of it and choose to proceed. We can be aware of it and choose to continue stepping into possibility um, in the interest of our own personal growth, in the interest of living a fulfilled life, in the interest of connecting with others, in the interest of bringing those we love with us. Um, I think that's all, I think that's all there in, in the mix. Um, and the, 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 the other part of this idea, if we want to, to work with a, a metaphor and to, to to get away from the idea of, of, of actual threat or actual um you know premeditated ending of one's you know of one's life at the hands of someone else, which is you know it's a very dark idea to contemplate. But rather to think, you know, life life is you know, is like this absolutely incompetent assassin that's always just kind of randomly and accidentally uh, taking people out. Um, you know, it, it's just haphazard. There's no reason for it. But stuff happens to all of us um, when we least expect it. Um, and for some reason, and this gives me an opportunity to revisit movies for a millisecond, um Spielberg's Schindler, Schindler's List as in the performance of Ray Fiennes uh, one of the great um, one of the great sociopaths depicted on screen this Nazi officer who casually and randomly from his quarters shoots and kills the, the 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 you know the, the Jewish uh, inmates um, in the the concentration camp over which he presides. Inmates doesn't feel like the right word, does it? What's the right word? A prisoner. Um, and in any case, it's it, it's one of Ray Fiennes' great performances, in my opinion, one of his best. 
um, truly uh, disturbing um, um, but charismatic kind of, yeah, sociopath, psychopath. I still don't know what the difference is. Um, and in a way, he maybe represents this idea that I'm sort of, you know, carefully eggshelling around of the indiscriminate threat the random nature because who knows um what's going to happen at any time but like what what can we do my advice to myself my counsel to myself is don't sweat it you know don't stress about what you don't know don't stress about what you can't control focus on what's in your um what's in your power focus on what's in your gift focus on where you have agency um because i think it could it just drive yourself mad otherwise so in other words to bring this to a clunky conclusion don't let the randomness of life assassinate your peace of mind <laughs> How about that? How about that for a really, um, yeah, a, a very ill-constructed uh, way to to draw this link to this, the subject of today's episode. It's, it's, it's gone on much longer than I anticipated, but that's probably just me talking about movies. Okay, listen, I am going to leave it there because uh, I've got to get on with my life, which involves sleep. Thank you for listening. If you're a movie fan, I think you will have enjoyed this episode. If you're a fan of assassinations, <laughs> you will have enjoyed this episode. Um, yeah, and uh, feel free to give me a shout out on social media, which you can do. You'll find the links wherever you're listening to this. That's YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, if you want to support this homegrown, independent podcast, you can there should be a supporter link if you're listening through the the Acast site. Um, otherwise, you can support me using the Patreon link. That's uh, patreon.com forward slash the clear out. And I would welcome anything you can contribute. And don't worry if you can't, don't worry about it. But you can share, you can rate, you can follow, you can comment. And all of that helps um, as, yeah, as I continue on this uh, this journey um so yeah okay that's it i'm done i'm done i'm done thank you for listening mind yourself and uh yeah just um just uh look carefully in those hedges when you pull up you don't know who's hiding in there um but hopefully you're uh, you haven't acquired enemies as, as as desperate and fearful as that they feel they have to go so far Right, watch yourself, mind yourself. I will talk to you real soon. All the best. See you. Bye.